All right. So last week, Andrew preached to us on this topic of refuge, and he had some challenging questions as he talked about sort of running into the loving arms of God. We talked about trust, and he asked us about what are things that we might be trusting more than God. Do we live our lives trusting God as if it matters? Do we actually think about how our relationship with God should and could change our own lives? And we want to continue that thought today as we dig into Psalm 91. Um, So let's dig into this psalm. This song, of course, has been a comfort um, and a security for people following God for thousands of years. It's especially helpful when we're in times of trouble and uncertainty, and I think it has an encouragement to us today. So let's dig in. Psalm 91, verse 1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. The psalm begins with this really welcoming phrase that whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. That gives a sense of security and protection, this amazing, big, powerful God being our shelter, being in his shadow. We were singing about his refuge and his covering us with his wings earlier today. But as much as this is, you know, a comfort to us, it's not sort of a passive sort of thing. You know, we might think of God as our refuge as, yeah, yeah, God is our refuge. But to dwell with God as our refuge is actually an active participation invitation. It doesn't just happen. You've got to seek out that refuge in order to enjoy God as refuge. That seems simple enough, but the idea can stay in our head and not come out in our actions. So when Hong Kong gets a T8 warning, what should we do? Go sailing, all right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, karaoke mahjong. Somebody said seek shelter, I think. I'm hoping. You know, we get these warnings because danger is coming. And it's important that we seek refuge, right? Thinking the idea of I need refuge is very different than actually seeking it. When Eric and I came out to Hong Kong to interview for the role here at Community so many years ago, In the midst of our time here, there was a T8, which we didn't know what that meant, T8, and we saw the city was abuzz with activity of everybody going back to their homes and things, and we were taken to our hotel in Happy Valley, and there was a a big storm, of course, and the storm sort of ended, and we didn't know any better, so we thought, let's go for a walk. You know, we don't want to be cooped up in our hotel room, and we were amazed that there was nobody in the streets. We are like, wow, Hong Kong isn't as busy as I thought. And we walked all the way from Happy Valley to Causeway Bay. We were surprised to find nothing open and uh, didn't fully realize that it was not a smart move to, to wander out in a TA. So the refuge is only helpful if we're seeking it out, if we actually go to God as our refuge. And so for our spiritual life, what what does that look like? How do we actively engage God as our refuge? We have to make a conscious decision to trust 
that God can be that refuge. If we don't believe, you know, the weather report about a T8, then we might just disregard it. If the weather was not accurate, if the structure that we were in was not secure, we might think, why bother going? So what we think of God is important. Do we trust him to be our refuge? Let's carry on in Psalm 91 with verse 3. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. So we get these lists of dangers, and this was probably a psalm spoken by a priest to a king, trying to give the king this idea of God's protection, perhaps in battle, perhaps for their nation. All of these things could destroy them and their kingdom and their people. But it's also this language of deliverance, and it would have reminded the people of God's faithfulness in the past, that God actually freed them from slavery, freed them from bondage and exodus. This great story that the Jewish people would remember year and year again through Passover. Remembering God's faithfulness is an important part of seeking him out as a refuge. Today, the exodus story might not be what we most deeply connect with in our faith lives, but how has God been faithful to you in your past? What current challenge are you walking through that you need God as your refuge? How has he showed up? Sometimes in the midst of the challenge, we forget how God has been faithful to us in the past. Let's carry on with verse uh, 9 to 13. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for you will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Now, we need to be careful not to use these words in sort of a prosperity gospel sense, that if you have enough faith, God will protect you from every wrongdoing, from every tragedy in life. We have to acknowledge that we live in a fallen and a broken world, and just because we're following God does not keep us from experiencing challenges, tragedies, the fallenness of others in our lives. We're not immune from harm. But what we see in Scripture is God's assurance and promise to be with us through those times. He doesn't promise to take away everything that's a challenge in front of us, but to be with us through it. In verse 13 here, we get this sense that we are in the middle of the story, but we haven't yet seen the end of the story. We're not yet, you know, treading on the lion and the cobra or trampling the lion and the serpent. We get this picture of this redemptive process, this old creation being transformed in a new creation that one day points to the ultimate reconciliation where there will be no more evil, where there will be no more heartbreak, 
where there will be no more death. We stand in the already and not yet part of that kingdom. As I was thinking of this passages and I was sharing at the retreat um, about Jim Elliott, I went to the same college Jim Elliott did, and he was a missionary um, along with uh, four others. And this is a picture of him with their wives and a couple of their kids um, in the 1950s, missionaries to the Waka people in the rainforest in Ecuador, and they were reaching them with the gospel. And there's been several movies made of their life journey. Um, I don't, won't go into much of their story now, but he had this famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I remember coming across this quote in high school and really resonating with it. And he held his life loosely. He held his life to God in saying, God, I will go wherever you take me. And the five missionaries, it took them to the ends of their lives. They were killed in the process of bringing the gospel to this tribe. And his, his wife at the time wrote this book, based, the title of it based in Psalm 91.1, In the Shadow of the Almighty. And you can say, you know, God did not protect him, right? He was following God. He did not receive this ultimate protection. And yet even for Jim and his wife, Elizabeth, they saw that God was still at work doing something. And we can see in hindsight that that event was a catalyst for others to be willing to share their faith, for others willing to finance people to go to places to share faith. And they saw many of the tribe turn their lives to God in the ensuing decades that came. We don't know the end of the story all the time. We might find ourselves in the middle and not see how God is going to redeem whatever it is we're going through. And we have to step back and just have a little humility that we've only seen one slice of this, but God isn't stopping his work. He says this in verse 14. There's a change of voice here into the personal direct voice of God. He says, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life, and I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God says, because he loves me, I will rescue him. There's this real language of relationship, of covenant, of this agreement and this way of walking together, committed to one another that we get to see and experience ourselves in our lives with God. It's a wonderful psalm of refuge. The psalm actually connects to Jesus. And the first time I read this, you know, many times ago, I hadn't really, hadn't really dawned on me the connection to Jesus. I never read these verses in this context. But do these verses uh, remind you of anything? For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. How does this verse interact with Jesus? Well, the devil quotes these verses to Jesus in the second temptation in Matthew. He says this to Jesus himself while Jesus is in the desert being tempted. He brings this psalm to bear to tempt Jesus. If this is a psalm to a king, Satan is acknowledging his kingship and offering him a pathway 
Not the pathway he is to take, but a pathway for Jesus. And Jesus isn't tricked by the temptation, but he quotes back to Satan from Deuteronomy 6.16. He says this, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel gave in to the temptations in the wilderness, but Jesus did not. Now, in an ironic twist, Jesus himself did not preserve his own safety. God did not keep Jesus from harm, but Jesus took the journey to the cross. And we just came out of Lent and we're in this Easter celebration service on that Good Friday to his followers. Good Friday did not seem like victory, it did not seem like a win. His followers thought everything was lost. This was tragedy. This did not go the way we had planned. Remember, they're at one point in the story. They don't have time to reflect or to step back to see what God might be doing in the midst of that. We, of course, can see that Good Friday was victory over death. It was this demonstration of God's incredible love. Time gives us a glimpse of the big picture. I've shared before about my childhood. It was a chaotic home environment. It was lots of uh, conflict, lots of um, uneasiness, lots of emotional highs and lows. And what did that do for me? Well, one, it led me to seek God as refuge. I needed a safe place because the home was not that safe place. That was God's beginning pursuit of me to show me that he could provide that safety that my family could not. He also used that chaotic time to, to open up my heart to deeper things, to have compassion for those who have had similar experiences. We don't yet know how God might be using whatever you're walking through right now, but he will use it for his good. He will make something out of it of his redemption. God says this in the psalm we were just reading. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And Jesus affirms this very message to his disciples after giving them the great commission. His closing words are, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This withness with God is our refuge in him. He assures us of his presence and lets you know you are not alone. You are not going through this by yourself. In fact, I am with you, and my presence with you will make the difference. Jesus invites us to find refuge in him, refuge in who he is, refuge in his care. Jesus says this to his followers, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you even more burdens to carry. No, that's not it. I will give you more unrealistic goals. I will give you demands nobody can meet. No. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He promises his presence with us, and he promises a different yoke from the yoke of this world. He promises us that refuge to take his yoke upon us, that we might walk with him, that we might be connected with him. So how does this all work? How... How does this work to have God be our refuge? And 
The first is this, and I've alluded to this already. Don't just think it, do it. Don't just think about God as being refuge, but actually put it into action. Live your life as if you want God to be your refuge. Seek it out. Whether it's a T8 or whether it is whatever challenge you're going through, seek God out as refuge. Psalm 46.1 says this, God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. And the psalm goes on to describe ways that God is our help and our refuge. But there's one invitation in that psalm to God's followers, and it's this. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Seeking God as refuge sometimes isn't activity. It could be like coming here, right? Worshiping, serving God, being in the life group. Those are all wonderful ways of seeking God as refuge. But sometimes it's just stopping and slowing down and remember that God is God and you are not. Slowing down and remembering who God is. We don't live in a time or a place that encourages slowing down. But it's all the more important that we do, that we give God time to rewrite maybe the narrative of the world, to remember his promises, to remember that there's more to life than what is right in front of me at this moment, that there's a big story going on and I get to be a part of it. It requires intention. We can do this daily. The second thing is trust grows through stretching. Trust grows through stretching. So Drew challenged us last week, what are some of the things you might be trusting in? Whatever we are trusting in will be the limitations of how far we can grow. If what I'm willing to do counts on my abilities or my bank account, um, my capacity, that will be the limit to what I look to be able to do. And that's not God's limit, though. He wants to grow our trust in him. He wants us to trust in him more deeply than maybe we currently do. Paul talks about this process in the church um, in Corinth, and he says it this way. In fact, we expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. The pressures and problems Paul was facing were so immense, he thought he was going to die. He expected to die. He was feeling crushed. But being crushed was not the end of the story. Being overwhelmed was not the end of the story. This suffering did something to Paul. What did it do? Paul learned to rely on God. The one who what? Raises from the dead. That is a lot of power, friends. Jesus himself was raised from the dead, and he promises when he returns, we will as well. That's a powerful God who welcomes us to take him as our refuge. Paul could recognize the end of his own ability, which opened up his ability to trust God deeper. 
That's an important lesson for all of us. It's an important lesson to realize Paul wrestled with this as well. If Paul couldn't do it on his own, neither should I think I could do it on my own. What are the things you're trusting that are getting in the way of you trusting in God? Are we playing it safe so our trust doesn't have to stretch? Or are we letting God stretch us? I remember, so after we came here and we interviewed, um, then we went back and we received the invitation to accept the call. And it felt like a really big decision for Eric and I. We'd never lived abroad. Um, it meant moving the kids middle of the school year. And yet we felt God calling us into this. And Eric and I were just reflecting the other day, like what if we had not responded to that? What if we wouldn't have sort of stepped out on that? And, you know, life probably would have been fine there. There probably would have been great things for us. But as we were reflecting, we would have so missed out on all we've experienced here. Experience this community and this city and God growing our heart and loving this place and loving the people here, loving this body of Christ. And we're so thankful that that small step of trust, that God met us in that place. It doesn't mean everything was easy. It doesn't mean everything was just a smooth sailing. Sometimes we can think if God calls us into something, oh, it must be an easy path. But we look at the disciples and none of them seemed to got really easy calls. They all ended up paying their price with their lives for their call. So God stretches us to grow us so we can depend on him more. Finally, third, we can practice the presence of Christ. We can practice the presence of Christ. Paul says in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. But I think we can forget God's love. Nothing can separate us, but we can get kind of amnesia for God's love or take it for granted in a way that it's not part of our daily lives. So we have to find ways to practice that presence, to remember that presence. We can do everything in the presence of God, whether it's coming here to worship, whether it's preparing a meal, whether it's going on your way to work. We can all practice the presence of Christ in those moments, or we can do all of those things not in the presence of Christ, not remembering he is present with us. Same daily routine, completely different experience, practicing his presence. Brother Lawrence was a master at this. As he would wash dishes in the monastery, he developed this incredible ability to do it in God's presence, and we can do that as well. It takes time. It takes intention. We, I mean, it's partly why we come together to be reminded, but also to practice Christ's presence. But Christ's presence isn't only with you here on Sundays. It's with you seven days a week to spend time with God practicing that presence. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are here. I thank you that you don't have us do this journey alone. In fact, you invite us into relationship, invite us to be a part of this journey. You invite us to take you as a refuge, God, instead of the many other things that we might be tempted to take. God, we confess that sometimes trusting you seems harder than trusting our own abilities, our own resources, our own intellect. God, and you've given us those resources for your kingdom, God. 
Those are good things to have, but may they not push you aside in our walk. May they not push you aside in who we're really trusting in, God. We thank you that you are a God that forgives, that you are a God that invites us into relationship, that you desire to welcome us with loving arms, that your faithful love to us is greater than our sometimes shaky love for you. God, we thank you for the gift of this table, this meal that we are about to partake in, that you um, use this time to show your great love, that your journey led you to the cross, that your journey led you to not responding to evil with evil, but taking that evil upon your shoulders to the cross. And that with arms stretched wide, you welcome us in. Because you loved us and you love us. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Amen.